Hello and welcome to Dairy Pod. I'm John Penry from Dairy Australia. Hotter months during the summer and late spring are a common denominator in most Australian dairy regions. The change in climate is also presenting us with a growing challenge where we are seeing more hot and dry weather conditions. And this is happening even in regions that traditionally do not have the sort of temperatures that would cause excessive heat stress in our dairy cows. In these times, how we manage our cows' diet and environment impacts on their ability to cope with the stresses caused by their environment, including temperature changes. In this Dairy Pod episode, Dairy Australia's Technical Lead for Feed-Based Nutrition, Rodrigo Alborno, discusses with lecturer and researcher Christy D. Giacomo and ruminant nutritionist Ian Sawyer options that farmers have available to them to look after their herds during the summer months. Hello and welcome to this episode of Dairy Pod. I'm Rodrigo Bonos, I'm Dairy Australia's National Lead in Feed-Based and Nutrition. And I'm joined today by Dr. Christy Giacomo, who is a senior lecturer and researcher at the University of Melbourne. And Mr. Ian Sawyer as well, who is a ruminant nutritionist with Feedworks. Um, both, um, both Christy and Ian are widely recognized experts in the ruminant nutrition sector. And so welcome Christy and Ian to our podcast. Thanks, Rodrigo. Thank you, Rodrigo. And um, can I please ask you to uh, tell us a bit about what you what you do and 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 your background in the dairy industry? Um, starting with you, Christy, if you don't mind. No worries. Thanks, Rodrigo. So I am a senior lecturer at the University of Melbourne, as you said. I have been working with mainly ruminants, but all species throughout my career. So I work mainly in ruminant nutrition, physiology, and metabolism. My PhD thesis was in heat stress in ruminants, so I worked in dairy cows and sheep, um, and I did one small beef study as part of that as well. So I've been working in the heat stress area for my whole career, which has been a little while now. I won't say how long. <laughs> Perfect. Very, very timely for this <laughs> podcast. Um, how about you, Ian? Um, yeah, I've been a nutritionist since 1987, so sort of 35 years now this has been my my trade, um, and I guess we we have our scars and our experiences over that period of time. Um, also, an adjunct fellow at the University of Melbourne, um, and proudly interact with uh, Christy and the team there quite a bit. So, a uh, bit of a team effort today. Excellent. Now, thanks for that. A lot of uh, lot of brain power into this podcast today. So, uh, thanks uh, thanks for joining us today. And um, let's uh, I guess let's let's jump right into it. Um, so we're approaching summer and, and most parts of Australia will be dealing with conditions that expose cows to, to heat stress. Um, we're also seeing more extreme hot weather conditions in regions that typically wouldn't be reaching temperatures of, of concern of concern for, for dairy cows. So what this means is that, that we need to be proactive on farm and increase our portfolio of tools available for, for keeping those cows cool. Um, now, starting with you, Chrissy, um, my my question is uh, what's what's heat stress and how do we define it in a for a dairy cow? Yeah, so I'm sure most people have seen heat stress in their animals. We have these European derived breeds of cows living in very hot systems that you know they weren't necessarily adapted for. Um, so heat stress causes a whole lot of things, some that you can see and some that you can't. So the more visual responses that you'll see are things like increased in respiration rate or panting rate, 
Um, they will seek out water. Sometimes they will climb into the water trough or the dam to get cool. They'll seek shade. They might stop eating. Their heart rate will go up. They will do things internally that aren't so visible but are certainly causing issues, like they will move their blood flow. So to try and cool themselves down, they'll stop. Uh, they'll move blood flow towards the skin so that it can be cool. But what that does is it leads to reductions in blood flow to other processes like digestion. So they'll stop um, digesting their food as they normally would. They might stop eating, and that's um, a whole lot of reasons why they do that. The metabolic heat associated with eating is a big one. So cows, when they're fermenting food, produce a lot of heat. They don't feel like eating. It's the same for you and I in a different way, but, you know, on a very hot 42-degree summer day, the last thing you want to do is sit down and have a big meal. Uh, so the cows are the same. Uh, so they do lots of things at a hormonal and metabolic level as well, um, but they're the big ones that you'll sort of see in the field, that they they stop eating, they seek shade, uh, they might pant, um, yeah, changes to heart rate, blood, blood flow distribution, lots and lots of things. And reproduction is one as well that's less visible, um, but they'll have some things that change in that capacity which potentially limits their reproductive efficiency or, or damages it. Yeah, yeah, interesting. And and um, that's an interesting comment around where those cows uh, have originated from. Um, from you know my experience in in Canada, I remember seeing cows in minus twenty degrees weather doing just fine. Well, during summer days with just 25, 26 degrees, it will be panting and and seemingly stressed. So. Yeah, very, very interesting. So it seems that there are a lot of internal changes happening that uh, into in those in those cows that are dealing with heat stress. Uh, what are what are some of the the consequences associated with with that in terms of production? And are there any long term effects related to that? Yeah. So what I didn't discuss then was the changes in metabolism. So what they do is they change how they use what sources of energy they use and how they use them in a very kind of brief way. So they they sort of preferentially use glucose um, and that means that their blood glucose levels drop slightly. They will start to mobilize protein instead of fat. So that instead of using energy from fat stores, they mobilize it elsewhere. And that causes a whole lot of other changes to um, other hormones and metabolites in the blood that probably don't need to get into here, but it causes systemic changes. All those hormonal changes will have big impacts. So some of the big hormones that are changing are things like um, IGF-1 and prolactin, and they will have big impacts on the growth and productivity of the animal, but also, as I mentioned before, reproduction. So you see sort of a 20 to 30% reduction um, in reproductive efficiency in animals that have been heat stressed, and that can actually be delayed and happen months later. So depending on when they're ovulating and things like that, you can see a reduction um, for them to return to full fertility. You can see oocyte damage, so carryover effects, uh, depending on the time of, of you know, reproductive stage the cows at as well. Um, you know, one paper I read said that follicle size reduces about 0.1 of a mil every increment of THI that increases on the day of estrus. Um, so depending on when that happens, you can see some really long-term effects. And then there's other things like prenatal programming that, again, I might not get into here, but if she's already pregnant, that calf can have issues later in life from being heat stressed in utero. So really long-term damage um, and a whole lot of other things as well because of the reduced intake. Um, so you can see a drop in milk yield because she's not eating enough, uh, all of these other things, and then increased susceptibility to illness because she's um, she's not eating enough, her immune system's um, being challenged, and then she might do things like seek water to cool herself down so she can be in dirty environments. Um, it's all, you know, it all exacerbates one another. 
Yeah, yeah, interesting. And it and sounds like many of those um, internal changes or metabolic changes really are similar to what happens to a transition cow or a fresh cow where um, yeah, she increases mobilization of, of body fat and, and changes how she utilizes other nutrients and also deals with low dry matter intake. And that predisposes those cows, those fresh cows to health disorders as well. So mm-hmm. yeah, a lot of similarities there. Um, so obviously think those are things that we, we try to minimize um, during this uh, uh, conditions. Um, and so, Ian, what are, what are some of the practical things that, that farmers can do heading into summer to mitigate against uh, heat stress? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, there's some stuff that we, we can address around the environment for the livestock themselves, and that's almost a prevention sort of strategy. As a nutritionist, I, I tend to look at things we might be able to do around the diet, but before we get to that, we should not give up on the fact that we can uh, potentially manipulate the environment for the better for the livestock, and particularly with something like shade. Um, shade's a huge welfare issue, and we lost a lot of shade belts during the millennial drought you know, through northern Victoria, southern New South Wales, right, right through. A lot, of, lot, a lot of places lost a bunch of trees that have been there, and they've not really been replaced. So we're probably going to have to address shade through man-made structures a little bit more than we might have, but it's a very important um, aspect and probably the single most important thing that we can do. Next around the environment will probably be work around sprinklers, uh, really crucial on those hot days to allow the animals to wet down. At the very least, we've got to do that in the backing yard of milking, but uh, I've seen a number of places where those backing yard sprinklers are left on during the hot days and the animals can return to the backing yard have it doused down once or twice in between milkings. They love it. Um, some of the really good setups you know, in those high-risk areas might involve a, a little feed pad um, and the capacity to, to feed stock closer to the sprinklers and allow that wetting down process to, to occur more regularly. You don't have to have a feed pad um, you know, on farm. A lot of people do these days, but you don't have to. But if we don't, we want to make sure that we take feed to the animals where the shade is. Mm-hmm. It's really silly to walk stock down through the sun to scrubby, dry summer pasture for a kilometre, um, stand them out there to pick up one or two kgs of low-quality dry matter grazing down in that part of the world and then tramp them back down to the dairy again, you know, umpteen hours later. They don't want to do it. It costs them milk. You're much better off to take something to them, uh, something they want to eat, and allow them to park themselves up in the shade and to consume that feed with a low energy output and a greater chance of higher dry matter intake. Um, In those extended weeks, to make one further comment, in those extended weeks, if you only own one really good, you know, truckload of of, of Lucent, you know it's going to be one of those weeks, you know, uh, where it's going to be 37 to 42 degrees and, you know, 21 and 24 overnight. That is the week to feed your premium forage to to those cows. It'll help them a great deal. Yeah, yeah, and much like um, Chrissy mentioned before, you know, we look at um, what happened to us humans when we're exposed to uh, hot weather. We don't want to eat, we don't want to move, and uh, we just want to sit comfortably under shade. And everything you can do to uh, make it easier for those cows to get access to yeah, uh, good quality feed and water, and in a shaded area, that's that's going to be beneficial. 
So you touched on 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 forage and forage quality and and feeding management, and that's that's a good segue to um, some of the questions that I have next, and 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 the topic that I would like to get into a bit more, um, because some of the research parts of of dairy feed base on on feeding cool cows has been looking at, at nutritional strategies to help um, mitigate heat stress. Some of the work on the team has been looking at, at things such as feed additives, changing the type of grain in the in the diet, and and the quality of the forage that is offered to those cows. Um, one of the things that the team has found is that that feeding an additive such as such as betaine can can contribute to lowering body temperature and to profitably maintain feed intake and, and production in those cows that are that are under that are on yeah I guess facing a, a heat event. Um, Christy, you um, you mentioned that you've um, you've done a fair amount of work on heat stress in the past, and I know that you work with betaine as well. Um, can you please tell us what betaine does in the in the body and 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 what were the outcomes of your research? around that. Yeah, sure. So as Ian mentioned, um, there's lots of things that we can do to try and mitigate heat stress, providing shade and cooling mechanisms. But quite often the problems really arise when it's hot all day and then still hot overnight. If you're not getting that overnight cooling, that's when the animals can't offload heat at night. They're getting up the next day still hot and then further exacerbating that. So that's where some of these supplements can be really useful. So we've showed that dietary betaine in lactating cattle diets, um, if you feed it at those periods where they're not getting any respite from heat, you can actually maintain milk production. So what betaine does is it's, it acts in a couple of ways, but one of them is as an osmolite. So it stops cells, helps cells maintain water volume. So stops them getting essentially dehydrated. Mm -hmm. um, and that can save the animal energy because they don't need to pump water in, in and out of the cells, but also of course they're, they're panting, they're losing water in other ways. So that helps in a lot of metabolic processes. Betaine can also act as what's called a methyl donor. So I won't get into the biochemistry of that, but methyl donors um, are important for lots of fundamental roles from, you know, DNA synthesis right through to different protein, um, yeah, different proteins being made and things in the body, um, as well as important pathways around, yeah, energy use and milk production. So lots of different things. So betaine can act as a methyl donor in that manner. So it's providing a substrate that the animal can use in many places around its body. And it does this really, really well. So um, relatively low doses of betaine can be super helpful. I showed this in my PhD work in um, sheep and cows, and then we've done some further work since. And I know that um, Ellen Bank have as well looking at betaine in lactating diets, and it's certainly been useful. And I believe that there's some information um, looking at betaine as a supplement to maintain reproduction as well. So I'm not across all of that information, but I believe it's been looked at too. Yeah, interesting. I was even I'm going to ask you if there's any research in humans as well, because you mentioned that it helps you keep cells hydrated. And, um, you know, after a big night out, uh, that's one of the things that you want to recover. Absolutely. You can certainly buy it at health food stores. Um, and I've seen betaine papers in humans uh, looking at muscle regeneration for elite athletes as well. So it's All really right. There you go. Yeah. There you go. Interesting. Yeah. And um, Ian, is um, betaine a, an additive that you, you normally um, recommend your dairy farmers to include in the diets in the summer? Yeah, it's been a, a good tool for a lot of people over a, a good number of years now. Probably started getting some use 20 years ago, 18 years ago, um, of, of that sort of you know, uh, time frame. And 
as Christy sort of said, there's there's a, a growing sort of body of of literature that suggests that it's doing good things. Um, in northern Victoria, sort of southern New South Wales, um, South Aussie WA, it's one of those tools that often goes in in that first hot week of the season, and that might be mid-November some years, um, late November, you know, early December other years. And for those sort of areas, it might stay there all summer. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, it's been quite useful. Typically people are putting it in their uh, grain mixes or their their pellets, um, 15 to 20 grams per head per day, 20 grams if it's a big cow, 15 grams if it's a little cow. Mostly it's getting used as a powder. Um, it can go into mineral supplements. There's liquid versions of it that can be used as well. Um, probably one comment, make sure you stick with one of the natural versions of the compound. Most of the research, I think all of the research has been done on um, natural betaine from sugar beets rather than the synthetic forms and the, the hydrochloride. I, I don't think there's uh, that body of evidence on the non-naturals. But, yeah, other than that, it's it's been a useful tool for a while now. Yeah, interesting. So, yeah, there's a bit a bit of flexibility as of how we incorporate it into diets and yeah, and I think it's a, it's a good point. What you mentioned last is, um, yeah, always using uh, or incorporating things into your diet that are that are backed by research, um, and that's that's something important to keep in mind. Um, some 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 of the some of the additional strategies that the feeding cool cows team has been looking at um, is around changing the type of cereal grain that is altering the diet and the type of forage. And um, they found that feeding corn grain, for example, um, instead of uh, wheat grain during that those hot um, conditions, uh, can improve forage intake and, and milk production in cows. <clears throat> they also found that feeding low NDF forages, such as fresh chicory, decreases body temperature and increases milk production during a heat event when compared with uh, feeding higher NDF forages, such as pasture silage. Um, Chrissy, uh, you know, from from your experience, you 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 were talking about, we were talking before about uh, trying to um, you know reduce um, that heat production that happens in the rumen, um, and 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 you've um, you've done some work with modulating the type of uh, cereal grain or the type of starch that goes into into the cow's diet. Um, can you comment on, on on what are the drivers for that improved response during a heat event when, for example, we're feeding a cereal grain such as corn instead of wheat? Yeah, so what you're doing, as I mentioned, is that um, you're changing that heat of fermentation. So when animals are eating a starch source that's being really quickly fermented in the room and by the microbes, that's producing a lot of heat Um which is, you know, somewhat an inefficiency, but it's also in a hot cow, not a nice feeling. So she's getting a whole lot of heat. Think about how large the rumen is and and how much capacity that's taking up in the body cavity. That's getting very, very hot. All that heat needs to move out of the body. uh, And because of changes to her core temperature, she's already too hot. So she has to go uh, use different methods to dissipate that heat. So that's, you know, respiration and other um, heat loss mechanisms that are available to her. So, By moving that side of digestion, so instead of having the rapidly fermentable wheat, for example, in the rumen, if you can have something like corn that is um, slower fermenting or you can bind those um, 
the, the starch sources with something that changes the site of digestion. So instead of it being fermented in the rumen, it's being absorbed and digested in the small intestine. That actually produces less metabolic heat. So she's getting less hot inside. So we did some work, initial work many years ago, looking at feeding cows versus cows corn versus wheat, and even just looking at the skin temperature using infrared cameras um, and just laser thermometers. Um, the rumen temperature, the flanked rumen temperature over the skin was degrees cooler in cows that were fed corn versus wheat. So you're just stopping that internal heat load from, from further pushing her along. Yeah. Yeah. And even one or two degrees uh, in a cow makes, makes a huge difference. Mm. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And then she needs to do less work to dissipate that heat. So you're costing her less energy to try and do that process. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and so what, what I'm getting from what it just said is that it's, uh, it's about um, slowing down the, digestibility rate of that uh, grain or that starch in the grain um, and not necessarily um, uh, reducing the digestibility. No, well, she still needs energy at that time. She's still mm -hmm. making milk. Uh, you know, you want her to not drop off milk yield too much. You want her to keep getting access to the energy that she needs and particularly glucose. Uh, so you don't want to eliminate that completely from the diet, but at the same time, you don't want to add too much extra stress. So it's a, it's a balancing act between getting that right. And that's where some of these supplements and treatments and just dietary changes can be really beneficial. Yeah. Oh, excellent. And, and, you know, we know that corn grain is not necessarily available in all, all regions in Australia. And then sometimes it can be, can be quite expensive compared with all the other cereal, cereal grains. Um, so, Ian, a question to you is: uh, what are what are some of the options available if if um, if, if corn grain is not available or if it's too expensive, or do we have it, some other options there? Um, yeah, there's a couple of different things. I mean, there's a bit of a funny thing. I mean, this year we've got a pretty reasonable spread between corn grain and say wheat, uh, wheat barley in southeastern Australia. Um, but there's a bit of an interesting thing: kind of anything that's yellow is colour-coded for slower fermentation. So a couple of things like peas and lupins um, sit there with corn and they're all yellow. And if we process them appropriately, uh, we can have a high energy supply, but we have that higher energy supply, just as Christy says, releasing itself over more hours post that feed. And uh, that's really helpful for the way fermentation carries on in that animal. So... Peas, lupins, corn, um, even fibres to a degree, they're, they're all quite useful for us in terms of alternate starch uh, supplies and, and energy supplies. Mm -hmm. We can take the winter cereals, the wheat and the barley, and um, treat those, those grains. Um, it costs about 30 bucks a tonne to treat those animals and uh, treat those grains and slow the degradation rate down. So we don't tend to do that unless there's a fair old spread between the, the corn price and, and the wheat price. But heck, you know, this year it might be 20 bucks, another year it might be 120 bucks. And right. they're all opportunities um, for us to embrace spreading our fermentation rate. And when we do that, nearly always good things happen. Yeah, yeah. So there, there are some options out there and uh, it's probably a, a matter of um, finding out a bit more about what, uh, as you mentioned, the, the, the color coding of each grain <laughs> and yeah, probably something that um, farmers can work out by themselves or with their with their nutritionist. Yeah, very much. It's pretty worth noting, Rodrigo. You know that that spreading of the fermentation. 
it becomes more important the more grain we're feeding. So if somebody's feeding only four kilos a day in two mm-hmm. feeds of two kilos, it's probably less crucial than somebody feeding seven or eight kilos. Um, yeah, that's something to to prioritise in the circumstances in which you're operating. Yeah, yeah, and and something from from my experience um, working with with trans, with fresh cows and feeding corn grain, um, uh, you know, we try to maximise the digestibility of that of that corn grain, and we know that. Um, the digestibility of, of corn grain compared with uh, barley or wheat when we crack it into a couple of pieces is not the same. And to maximize that utilization of the starch in the corn, we need to really um, process it. And in this case, I imagine uh, if we're trying to deliver more energy to the cow, uh, that's probably the case as well, isn't it? Yeah, very much. I mean, We've got in our mind in Australia and, and New Zealand a, a perspective of, of what processing grain looks like based on our winter cereals. Mm. And if we do that to corn, we are going to deliver a lot of starch in dung. And our responses to those dietary changes can be not as good as what we would want. So we need to pulverise corn far more than what we would want to have with the winter cereals where we just want to see them in three or four pieces. What is optimal for wheat and barley processing is suboptimal for wheat for corn processing. Corn processing yeah. needs to be much finer. But if we get that right, then the outcomes from um, corn use are, are really quite you know, quite productive. Yeah, yeah. And what I notice is that even if if if, if we're finding fine, if we're grinding corn grain that, that to a very fine grid, um, if we're feeding good quality forages uh we're not seeing any issues with acidosis or anything like that um, so if you were to you know put out a recommendation for how fine you need to grind the corn grain what what would be your your suggestion i would love to see this we could talk about microns but that means nothing to anybody what we're <laughs> going to say is we want to see the corn grain in about a hundred bits one corn grain into about a hundred bits um and you know that's quite flowery um yeah. it's quite flowery and we're comfortable with quite flowery where we would not be comfortable with quite flowery in our winter cereals mm. yeah 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 that that put put cows at, at risk especially in 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 um during heat stress when the the feed intake is low or the forage intake particularly is low and yeah very much yeah Oh, good. Well, and we touched on on forage. So, and and as I mentioned before, one of the things that the the feeding cook house team found is that you know, feeding low NDF forages such as chicory improved uh, the um, production and intake of those cows during a heat event compared with higher NDF forages such as um, uh, pasture silage. And we know that forage quality is king at, at any stage of, of lactation and, and during hot weather, it doesn't seem to be the exception. Um, so, Christy, what, what, is, what, what is driving that, that positive response with, with better forage quality during, during one of these heat events? Yeah, so that's a combination of some things I've touched on already. So that digestive efficiency, really. So if it's crap you know, two fibrous forage that takes a long time to be fermented and 
digested by the animal, um, that's not necessarily a good thing in this case. And as well as something I haven't really touched on, but there's, you know, more evidence coming out around changes to the microbiome of the rumen in response to heat stress as well. So you're getting some changes to which bugs live there. Um, so, you know, I think more information will come out about that in, in the next few years around what's actually happening and, and which bugs are happy and which ones are not. And so that's going to impact digestibility. Um, but what that's going to mean is the cows, you know, rumen, um, storing that food in her rumen for longer. She's fermenting it for longer. Therefore, her overall intake is probably going to go down because she doesn't have that drive to keep eating. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's going to lead to, you know, fewer nutrients. Of course, during lactation, what you're trying to do is, is not have that happen and you want to be pushing as much energy towards the mammary gland as, as she can. Uh, so that's going to lead to a whole lot of problems just with milk production as well as other things that we can talk about there. So, yeah, good quality feed is important. Of course, summertime can be hard to get that, but absolutely, as Ian said, you should be throwing all of your best stuff at her at those challenging times. Yeah, yeah. So it sounds that uh, we're trying to reach a combination of a slowly fermentable grain with a more digestible forage in order to uh, sort of keep those cows cool is that is that right yeah that's absolutely right yeah yeah ah, excellent and um you know we, we know it's been an exceptionally challenging season for many farmers to make good quality silage with all the with three la niñas in a row and you know the challenges of getting into into the fields for making any sort of uh, preserved uh, forage um Ian, what, what sort of qualities are we expecting to see this season and how can we manage that in this uh, during the summer? Yeah, well, um, don't know we that any of us know exactly what we're going to see just yet, but we don't <laughs> think it, we don't think it's going to be any good. How about that for a starting point? Um, we are going to cut our silage really late. We're going to cut our hay really late. We're going to have a late come off of fodder, there's going to be a bunch of it probably, but it's all going to be really mature. High lignin, high NDF, high ADF, low protein, low fermentability, going to produce lots of gut fill challenges. They're not going to take as many bites as we would have liked. They're not going to get as much nutrient out of each bite. Um, it's going to be a tough year for forage quality. Um, cereal, hay, um, crop will be impacted as well so it's not like we can go out and buy high quality cereal hay this year the vetch crop is pretty much kaput mm. in southern australia so we're not going to have access to vetch as a purchased fodder we're going to be a bit more reliant on homegrown fodders and home harvested fodders i think we probably need to make sure this year of all years we do a little bit of testing because if we've had certain thoughts in mind about how good my silage is most years and that might sit somewhere like 52 NDF and, you know, nine and a half megs or something like that. This year you might be another megajoule down and five units to seven units of NDF higher, which will have big impacts on your summer productivity. Mm. Uh, so beyond the maturity, goodness, there's going to be a lot of weather-damaged fodder. And that weather-damaged fodder is really likely to be uh, mould and fungal impacted. Uh, and if we've got mould and fungal impacts, you know, wrapping it in plastic doesn't make those things go away. Sticking it in a bale doesn't make those things go away. Chopping it into a pit doesn't make those things go away. Um, they're still going to be there, and we've got greater risk probably this year of mycotoxins 
mm. and those sorts of things as well. So it's going to be a challenging forage year. And in a challenging forage year with all that stuff going on, if we want to hold up the nutrient intake to animals in heat stress conditions, we're probably going to have to fall back onto supplemental feed a bit more uh, this year than we even might have done before. So making some of those changes around how much we feed in the bales or what proportion of our diet is starch um, and non-fibre carbohydrate, those are decisions that will probably drive slightly higher this year uh, yeah. with compromised fodder. Yeah, they're very, very challenging times. And um, and if we are trying to, I guess, achieve a highly digestible forage or a forage with low NDF, it's going to be very difficult. Um, you know, thinking about what uh, what options do we have? Um, I guess if you have the ability to uh, purchasing some good quality hay, maybe you can substitute some of your poor quality silage uh, with that good quality hay, maybe. Um, if you have the ability to put down some chicory or or some summer crop like that, uh, possibly they can help uh, mitigate that uh, negative or that low quality forage, uh, I guess. Uh, almond holes might be an option this year, Rodrigo. I mean, some uh, products, yeah, yeah. Uh, some of the non-forage fibre sources, you know, mm -hmm. almond holes, whilst quite low in protein, offer a, a fairly reliable, fairly fermentable um, uh, non-forage fibre source that can be used to backfill some unavailable forage um, or lower quality forage. So I could see those guys presenting, you know, quite effectively this year. Yeah. Yeah, so we have a couple options there if, if our silage quality is not there. Exactly. Yeah. Now, um, that was that was really good, really great discussion. So to to wrap up, um, and this is this uh, this is a question for the two of you. Uh, what are the three key things that a farmer should focus on to uh, mitigate the negative impact of of hot weather on their cows? What do you think are the three key things that people can do on farm? Ian and I will both agree that number one is shade. Of course, that's a longer-term goal. You can't just instantly do that. Um, planting trees is the best way because they can act as a heat sink as well. But, of course, that's for that's a future goal, um, but something to think about if you've got capacity to do that to future-proof. Otherwise, building shade sheds and things is important, but the design is very, very important for those. So you need to think about how many cows are standing under it, roof height, materials, all of those things. There's lots of information on how best to do that. But what we didn't touch on was that, um, there's differences in dry heat versus humid heat. Mm. So in the humid heat conditions, that shade is not really as useful. Um, so that's where you need to think more about, you know, your sprinklers and, and other cooling systems. Um, so I would say that's number one. Ian, I shouldn't put words into your mouth, but I feel like you would agree with me on that one. So the, the, humid, the humid heat will be more of that subtropical Queensland, northern New South Wales, or are we talking uh, you know, northern Victoria as well? Uh, well, yeah, depends on the depends on the season in Northern Vic, I guess. But yeah, probably more so in the the Queensland regions, um, mm -hmm. where they've got that the capacity for the animal to dissipate heat into the air. If the air is already saturated with humidity, that changes the routes at which heat loss happens. Um, so you need to think about things a little bit differently. And of course, it's changing the kind of feed that they're eating as well. So there's a whole lot of differences there. Um, 
So that was my number one. Number two, of course, is is feeding them properly and that can come in many different ways. So something we didn't really touch on, I think Ian mentioned it briefly, but um, changing when you feed the animals, if you have the ability to do that, the animals don't want to stand and eat at 1 or 3 p.m. when it's the hottest part of the day. If you've got yeah, capacity right. to cut and carry feed and give it to them later in the day, then that's great. And further on that, if you can milk them at different times of day, that's helpful as well. Walking them into the dairy in the heat of the day at 4 or 5 o'clock and having them stand around in the sun is very unhelpful. I understand that that's not always practical on farm, but some of those changes can be really, really useful. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, thinking about the room and keeping what you feed, the type of feed, if you're giving supplements, what kind of supplementary feed they might be, what kind of grain, do you need to put some other dietary supplements in there, whether that be betaine or some of the other options available or, you know, processing the grain in a different way. They're all really important things to think about. Yeah. Great. Yeah. And anything you, you would like to add to Chris's comments? Um, Oh, look, let's just add to the comment more than you absolutely shade. Number one, mm-hmm. if we're in a house cow circumstance or if we're in that sort of semi-tropical environment, air movement becomes really important. So, you know, if, if we're housed, well, clearly there's shade there already. But, you know, the fans in uh, a, a confinement system become important for air movement. Uh, the misters and, you know, the, the, the sprinklers become important. But the the less uh, scope we've got for evaporation, the more the air movement becomes important. Um, yeah, second, dry matter intake. You've just got to do stuff to hold dry matter intake up. Mm-hmm. The cows want to drop dry matter intake, and we've just got to do everything we can do to get dry matter intake up. In a lot of cases, that's probably going to see people feeding a bit more grain to these hot cows. That's Tristy said, they, they want more glucose. Well, you know, grain and starch is, is good for glucose. Um, we're giving them what we want. But on the back of that, we risk creating a little bit of challenge around the rumen. When those cows pant, they lose carbonate from the whole system. They they you know, they breathe out um, carbon dioxide and that can put a bit of a challenge back through the saliva, uh, believe it or not, in, in how effective the saliva is at rumen stability. So we're going to adjust the diet to, to help them cope and then we've got to help the rumen cope with us adjusting the diet. Um, and so we have to take those two steps, you know, um, do some stuff around it, a bit of extra room and buffering, um, spread your carbs because that helps the rumen out as well. But yeah. both of those things are sort of around diet adjustment and that's part of what we'll do. And, Rodrigo, I'm going to take the liberty of adding one point that we probably should have touched on throughout this conversation is water access and water quality. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, absolutely important. The volume of, of water that the cow's already drinking is a lot because she's lactating, but add heat stress on top of that. Um, so really checking that they've got good access to water and it's clean water. Mm. Yeah. And then, and do you, Chrissy, do you know um, any um, work that's been done around offering um, cold versus warm water to cows? Uh, yeah, oh, look, I'm not aware of all the research, Rodrigo. I think it has been done. Um, from an infrastructure infrastructure perspective, I think that would be tough, um, you know, depending on how much water you have access to and, and where it's coming from. Um, so you don't want to be creating systems where you have a whole lot of energy requirements to do that. But it certainly would work thinking of the volume of water that gets into that room and it would cool the cow down, potentially only temporarily, um, but it would certainly help. Yeah, yeah. No, and, that because, and the question comes from... The back of um, some work that I've seen several years ago, some 10, 15 years ago back in Argentina, where they um, uh, they offered 
cows that were in heat stress, uh, two buckets, one with cold water and the other one with warm water, and they they did not have any particular preference for either of them. Right. Now, the effects that it will have in the cow are probably different, as you mentioned, but the cow itself did not have a preference. Um, but um, yeah, uh, that, and that was just one piece of work. Obviously, it's we need mm-hmm. to see what's, mm-hmm. uh, what is, what other type of research is, is telling us. Um, that's uh, that's been great. That's been a great discussion. Thank you so much, uh, guys. That that's been very informative. I think it's, uh, it's it provided some 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 guidance as of um, what farmers can do to um, mitigate the, the negative impact of heat stress and. And we dive deep into one of the, those tools that we have available, that is um, nutritional strategies. And um, and so thank you both, uh, Chrissy and Ian, for your time today and for sharing your, your expertise uh, with, with our audience. And it has been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks, Rodrigo. Thank you, Rodrigo. And thank you, Christy. If you would like to find out more about the different dairy innovation programs or the Cool Cows resources, you can find this information by contacting your local regional office. We really hope that you've enjoyed this podcast and remember that there are plenty more on a broad range of dairy industry topics covered in the Dairy Pod program. So don't forget to subscribe on your favourite podcasting platform. If you have any questions or ideas, For future podcast episodes, please get in touch with us by emailing to dairypod at dairyaustralia.com.au. Thanks very much for listening and bye for now.